You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 68, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, today, folks, we've got a very special guest, Dr. Joseph A. Schwartz, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Joe. He's a professor at uh, McGill University. That's in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. For those of you that uh, aren't Canadian or are Canadian and don't know about that, uh, he's a director of McGill Office's uh, Office for Science and Society, uh, which is an office dedicated to uh, demystify science for the public. He has a PhD in chemistry, which he gained in 1973. McGill, for those of you who don't know, McGill University is one of the top 33 or 42 universities in the world, depending on the uh, ranking agency you consult, or one of the top, and the second or third best universities in Canada, again, depending on which ranking agency you consult. He's also the host of the Dr. Joe Show, which is a uh, what is it, CJAD 800 AM. It's a radio show. It's been going since the 80s, as far as I understand. And also, if you if you just Google him, Dr. Joe, uh, various topics, you can actually get uh, YouTube content. That's actually how I found him, YouTube content, published through, uh, at least what I've seen, through the Montreal Gazette, a uh, major publication, uh, news publication in Montreal. His show is uh, dedicated to debunking myths and uh, answering questions about science, the science of everyday life. So, uh, Doctor, do you prefer Dr. Joe or D- uh, Dr. Schwartz, how do you prefer to you be addressed? You can call me Joe. Okay. All right, <laughs> Dr. Joe. Uh, tell us about yourself and your office. Uh, why, why are you doing this and, and what's it all about? Well, I actually got interested in chemistry, believe it or not, uh, way before I ever got a PhD. I was back in grade six. That was a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, I was invited to a birthday party with about a dozen friends, and I remember it very well. We were sitting on the floor in my friend's living room, and his parents had hired a magician to entertain us for the birthday party. He was a teenager, but, you know, at that time, to us, he looked like an accomplished pro. (laughs) Most of the tricks he did were eminently forgettable, but there was one that was not only memorable, but believe it or not, life-changing. He did a rather simple trick where he took three ropes and uh, using uh, what he called a magic chemical, reached into his pocket and he used this invisible magic chemical. He sprinkled it on the three ropes and magically the three ropes became one long rope. Oh, wow. And, uh, of course, I knew even at that rather early age that he wasn't doing this with any invisible magic chemical. (laughs) Uh, But it really intrigued me why he used those words. Why not alakazam or hocus pocus or abracadabra, you know, which are the usual words that magicians use? That that really stuck me, you know, and uh, I went to the school library and I took out a book on chemistry and took out a book on magic. And I followed those ever since. And, you know, you might think that this is a very strange business because, you know, chemistry is a hard science firmly rooted in the laws of nature. And what do magicians do? They counter the laws of nature, right? They, yes. make, they make ladies float in the air. They cut them in half and put them together. And they make things vanish and appear. Well, of course, I quickly found out that uh, a magician on the stage is an actor playing the role of a magician. And everything that he or she does is done by perfectly explicable scientific means. Yes. Including, in many cases, some chemical tricks. So I got interested and I kept reading uh, both about chemistry, both about about magic. 
And uh, that also got me into the area of pseudoscience because magicians uh, hate when magic tricks are used by people who claim that they actually do something for real. Uh, mediums and clairvoyants will sometimes do that. Yes. Uh, you know, they will do the same kind of magic tricks that we do on the stage, but they claim that they have some special power, you know, that they can bend spoons with the power of the mind, etc. Or connect so, you with a long-lost loved one. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, that always bothered me, you know, because it, it was really stretching science way, way further than what the evidence suggests. So I got into the business of, uh, you know, debunking some of this stuff. And also, uh, uh, luckily, I had the chance to become an academic and teach chemistry. And uh, I always made a focus of uh, teaching uh, in such a way that students could relate whatever was being taught in the lecture to everyday life. That's very important. Yeah, chemistry is, is, is not mathematics. You know, mathematics you learn because it enhances the way you think. It teaches logic, etc. Yes. Chemistry is different. Chemistry is very applied. It's applied mathematics and, and, and physics and, yes. Yeah, I mean, chemistry is, is the thread that ties the other sciences together because if you have a good understanding of what molecules are and the reactions in which they can engage, you have a pretty good uh, understanding of uh, the way things work and you can explain it. So I, I always... Uh, uh, made sure that whenever I was teaching something, whether it was you know quantum mechanics or some some uh, aspect of physical chemistry or organic chemistry, I always showed the students the the light at the end of the tunnel, why they were learning this. Good. And I think that that is very important is to bring in the the, the practical. And of course, uh, you know, uh, it's not difficult to do that because whether we're talking about uh, drugs or or foods or or gardening or plastics, uh, all of this is based upon chemistry. So it was always easy to infuse these kind of ideas into my lectures. Yes. Then, uh, as you know, uh, this seemed to be very popular with the students, they were going home and talking to their parents about it, and I started to get invited to speak to, to study groups and you know PTA functions, etc. And it kind of took off from there, and I was answering a lot of questions by, by email and by phone, and then 20 years ago, the university said, well, you know, let's try to formalize this. And uh, it established our office, the Office for Science and Society, which is really a unique venture in, in, as far as I know, among universities in North America, where we are solely dedicated to demystifying science for our students and for the public. I, I, can't, and, I can't think of a, an example. I mean, I spent a good deal of time in graduate school. I spent a lot of time as a student. I can't think of an example of something like that in my experience as, as no, a student I, I or think, as academic. You know, there are individual professors at various universities yes. who, who do outreach. Yes. But uh, I don't know of any office that is organized and dedicated to doing exactly what, what we do to try oh. to demystify by science and separate sense from nonsense and hopefully foster critical thinking and keep people out of the clutches of charlatans. <laughs> so uh, 20 years ago, uh, our office was established and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully we've uh, had an impact. Uh, we uh, think that, that uh, we're explaining things properly to the public. Of course, we would like to uh, engage more people because, as you know, the, the Internet is very powerful. And the quacks usually have their way with it uh, because they will have uh, simple solutions to complex problems. And that's what people want. You know, they, they, they want uh, magic in their life. 
they can also uh, they can use it as a platform to sell various products and then use the the profits they get from that to breathe money into their uh, reach and that sort of thing and really get their message out there we fight this by uh, uh, hopefully you know blanketing our office with good information about food about medications about cosmetics environmental issues plastics uh, genetic modification etc and uh, uh, sometimes of course it feels like we're preaching to the choir uh, but I think that we do also reach some people who uh, don't know which way to swing and uh, you know they they are confused uh, because uh, you know scientific information seems to change one day eggs are good to eat the next day you know they're uh, increasing your risk of heart disease Uh, so uh, (laughs) We, we try to have a good balance and, and what I always point out to, to my listeners and to all, all my correspondents is that uh, I think the reason that we have uh, trust and success is because we have no vested interest. Mm. We do not accept any money from any, any source. It makes no difference to me or, or to my colleagues whether or not any food additive or any medication is legalized or banned. The only thing that makes a difference is that whatever decision is arrived at is arrived at based on proper scientific methodology, exactly. not on hearsay and not on emotion. Yes. And uh, so that's what we do. And I, I've been uh, also doing a radio show now going on to 40 years, uh, which is the longest running radio show in the history of the world on chemistry. <laughs> I noticed it was AM. Yeah, of course, it is also <laughs> the only radio show on chemistry in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we're answer questions and, and bring up topics, uh, you know, that are of, uh, of interest, hopefully, to, to everyone. So we, we blog, we use the Internet, we, you know, we tweet. You got, everyone got a tweet these days. Uh, we use Facebook. We use newspaper articles. I've written 16 books, plus the radio show, plus uh, opportunities like trying, like talking to you. And we hope to spread the word about uh the interpreting of science in a proper way. Uh, this is just fantastic for someone like me with an academic background. And, you know, I think there's a problem out there in terms of perception where this concept of science is viewed like a, uh, a paradigm with all the answers. And science scientists don't view themselves that way. And no. There's, a, no. there's a tendency to use the word science yeah. like it's some person or whatever. It, it's right. It's individual actors employing the scientific method to try to answer questions. Exactly. And uh, uh, I think one of the analogies that I like to use is is science is like a race towards the finish line, but the finish line keeps going away from you. Yeah. But but you're always getting closer to it. So we don't claim to have all of the answers because science just doesn't do that. You don't, you Uh, don't, in fact, you never claim to actually, I mean, if you think about the, What's it called? The logic of disconfirming hypotheses. You, you never even claim to know the answer. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the word science comes from the Latin for knowledge. Yes. And and uh, depending on which area we look at, I mean, in some areas, of course, we have super sophisticated knowledge. We know how to put a satellite into orbit around the Earth. Right. This is not contentious. We watch satellite TV all the time. We know <laughs> that we know that this works. Uh, we know how to make lipstick. We know how to make cleaning agents. However, there are other areas where uh, it is much more difficult to know something. 
for example, what are the environmental consequences of pesticides, you know, mm -hmm. on, on humans? Uh, you know, where will genetic modification go? Uh, what, uh, what is the prognosis for legalizing cannabis? Uh, these are not yes or no answers. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, not white or black. These are various shades of gray. Yes. And that's, that's where uh, a lot of people get confused because they want concrete answers. Well, in some areas, science can deliver the, the concrete answers. I mean, we know how to build a car. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's very different from knowing what a certain pesticide in trace amounts uh, will do to humans. Yeah, and the best we can do is say what's, what's most likely or most probable based on the number of observations we've made and relative to the kinds of observations we've made. Exactly, at a given time. <laughs> at a given time. <laughs> you know, uh, of course, as, the, as we do more experiments and as we gather more knowledge, uh, our opinion might change. Yes. On, you know, on, on something. And we, and, can, uh, we can change our mind because every claim is falsifiable. Exactly. And that's the way science works. You know, sometimes uh, when I'll do a public lecture, you know, and, and uh, someone will come up to me after and uh, tell me, you know, I, I had you as a professor 30 years ago, which of course already stops you in your tracks. <laughs> When you see this elderly lady telling you that. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that you were telling us, you know, that vitamin E was good for the heart, and now, now you're saying that, you know, the, the evidence doesn't corroborate that. You see, you guys, you scientists, one day you say this, the next day you say that, how can we trust you? Well, you know, my, my pat answer is that, you know, 30, 40 years is not exactly one day this, next day that. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, evidence that accumulates in that span of time with numerous papers being published. And indeed, 40 years ago, some of the early studies on vitamin E uh, seemed to show benefit uh, in terms of preventing uh, heart disease. But as bigger and better studies were mounted with more and more people, that evidence seemed to disappear. And we see this over and over again, that at first there's some study that comes out which shows some spectacular benefit, you know, in a laboratory study or an animal study, and everyone jumps on the bandwagon, and, you know, we have the, the, the next breakthrough. And then better studies, bigger studies get mounted, and, and you often see the original optimism just uh, fade away as it is replaced by reality. That's, but that's science. Well, there seems to be a, almost like a, a human propensity to, I actually did a podcast episode on this concept, the concept of uh, post hoc propter hoc, you know, like yes. um, the first cause is best cause. Yeah. We seem to have an incredible affinity for if we see some evidence of one thing doing something, we, we want to jump on that. You know, I talk a lot about toxicology. And of course, there are some standard, uh, you know, cornerstones of toxicology. One which was first voiced over 500 years ago by Paracelsus is that only the dose makes the poison. And I think most people can relate to that. You I know, think that, you, I saw one of your YouTube videos where you talked about this. Yeah. And uh, the other uh, very important concept is that uh, association is not the same as cause and effect. No. Uh, just because two measurements may run in parallel doesn't mean that they are related. No. And, of course, a, a classic example is, is that uh, there certainly is a very strong association between breast cancer and wearing skirts but nobody would suggest that skirts cause the disease. But it's, it's obvious why there is an association. 
And uh, very often people are, are very quick to jump on associations. You know, for example, uh, glyphosate, which is a controversial pesticide. It is the, the one that is used on, on uh, uh, corn, uh, canola, and uh, uh, a few other products. Uh, it's, in that are, it's in Roundup. Yeah, Roundup, herbicide resistant. Glyphosate is the trade name is Roundup. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about uh, glyphosate. And you have people saying, well, look, you know, you draw a graph about the increased use of, uh, of glyphosate and the increase in diagnosis of autism, and both are going up at the same rate. Therefore, glyphosate must be causing autism. Well, it doesn't work like that. That's not uh, a causal no. connection. That's just, you know, there's a may, the possibility right. of a correlation, and that's it. Right. And we don't know what causes autism. Uh, one could make a similar plot uh, against the uh, increase in, in sales of organic uh, produce, and you would get the same kind of plot. But nobody <laughs> would suggest that organic produce causes autism. There, I guess there would be a, a correlation with anything that is more prevalent now than it was before. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's very tempting uh, for the human mind to jump to a cause and effect relationship. But... You know, this is something that we have to carefully guard against uh, because it takes a lot of evidence to prove cause and effect. Yes. So we're getting very academic here, and I want to bring it back to gardening because my, uh, <laughs> my viewers are gardeners. Okay. <laughs> okay so uh, one of the things we're going to talk about this episode, and it's great that I have a chemist here, is, uh, and this is something I've read about various sources on the internet. I'm not going to cite any of them, but this idea that... Uh, if you're eating vegetables, they should be eaten raw, that they're alive, and uh, the contrast between uh, cooking vegetables. And, and right. just using the example of kale, because it's a very popular thing that gardeners like to grow, and it's a very uh, in-style uh, food item right now. I, I will say that I was growing kale before it was a thing, but anyway. Um, so, And you know it must be good for you because it doesn't taste good. <laughs> exactly. I like to add bacon to mine. Uh, so this, is, this is a, a classic <laughs> example of how science is not uh, white or black, but shades of gray. Uh, you can't make a blanket statement about eating raw vegetables or cooked vegetables. It depends on which vegetable and what nutrient you're talking about. So, for example, if you consider tomatoes, tomatoes are a good source of vitamin C. But if you cook the tomato, a vitamin C is heat labile, and much of the vitamin C is destroyed. Um, on the other hand, tomatoes are also an excellent source of lycopene. That's the red pigment in, in tomatoes. Yes. And there's a lot of evidence about lycopene having anti-cancer properties. Well, it turns out that lycopene is much more readily released once you cook the tomato. Yeah, like it's so, a tomato paste, like just full of it because it's like condensed, cooked, super that's right. cooked. So here's one case where cooking is beneficial if you're looking at lycopene, but not when you're looking at the vitamin C content of the tomato. On the other hand, you have to consider that vitamin C is very readily available in, in, in virtually all fruits and vegetables. So we don't have a shortage of vitamin C, but it's more important to get a good dose of, of, uh, of lycopene. Because it's more rare. Yeah. Similarly, beta carotene, which is the uh, yellow orange pigment in carrots. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the body's precursor to vitamin A. And uh, unfortunately, can you explain that when you say precursor to vitamin A? Do you mean you, you need it to, to take up vitamin A? 
you needed to make vitamin A in the body. Okay. Vita vitamin A, which is, is very important for the immune system and also very important for vision, uh, is only found in animal products, preformed vitamin A. On the other hand, beta carotene, which is found in a number of, of vegetables like, like carrots, in the body is converted to vitamin A. So awesome. we call that a precursor. You can synthesize it if you have that you building block. It. You can make vitamin A in the body from, uh, from beta carotene. Unfortunately, vitamin A is one of those vitamins that is in great shortage in the developing world. And there are uh, hundreds of thousands of children, unfortunately, who are affected, many of whom go blind every year from just having a diet that is deficient in, in vitamin A and they're and beta carotene because they don't eat uh, vegetables their diet is mostly rice right. which doesn't have any uh, any of this so uh, when you cook a carrot you are releasing the beta carotene much more so than when you eat a raw carrot so in that case it is worthwhile cooking now, also, you so what you're saying is that the beta carotene is more bioavailable when you cook That's the right. carrot yes it I is see. now on the other hand when you look at kale or other cruciferous vegetables like, like broccoli and, and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Uh, here the story changes somewhat because these uh, contain compounds called glucosinolates. And these glucose, glucosinolates are transformed into a compound we call sulforaphane, which has anti-cancer properties. But this transformation takes place with the use of an enzyme which is present in the plant. However, if you cook it, you destroy that enzyme. Oh, no, no. And therefore, when you eat the stuff, it doesn't get converted to sulforaphane. So for these cruciferous vegetables, uh, you either eat them raw or lightly steamed. A light steaming will not destroy the enzyme, and it will soften it enough to make it more, more palatable. So, you know, the moral of the story is that it depends on which vegetable you're looking at, it depends on which nutrient. Uh, it's of course important to eat lots of fruits and vegetables and uh, eat some raw and eat some cooked and that will cover all of your bases. Well, that's... <laughs> I, <laughs> I always cook mine, so I do cook it very quickly, but... Uh, and then the other thing I, th I always think is if, if you, you know, when you cook it, 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 it sort of uh, wilts and you actually end up eating more because it, you can... Well, that may, that may be so. It also, of course, depends on how you cook it. Yes. Uh, boiling and steaming are the best way. Frying is not so good. No. Because then, of course, it will absorb some of the oil. And uh, also, when you uh, fry at a high temperature, the oil itself undergoes changes. It, be, it is oxidized. That's the term we use. It reacts with oxygen of the air. And when you consume oxidized oil, uh, that can be detrimental because in the body, that can release free radicals. And those are sort of the notorious species that, that uh, can uh, trigger aging and can trigger cancer. Oh, my God, Dr. Joe. I fry everything. <laughs> well, you fry it because it makes it taste good. Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. Olive oil and a little saute and a little salt, you know. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is one of, the, unfortunately, one of the, the fundamental rules of nutrition is that the better it takes, tastes, the worse it is for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy well i'll have to uh adjust things a little bit to get because i eat this a ridiculous amount of uh, uh 
you know, like I have a, a fairly large garden in my backyard, and especially this time of year, it really drives my diet. We had we ate kale and beans and potatoes tonight with a little bit of chicken. Um, well, you know, if you just do a little stir fry, that's not so bad. That's how I it basically everything yeah. is basically uh, stir fried and very quickly as well. So it's not like yeah. not deep frying anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's uh okay, so that's you know I guess uh, raw or cooked uh, depends on what it is and uh, just eat lots of vegetables. <laughs> eat a lot. That's that's uh, probably a good way to go. Uh, the other thing we were going to talk about, I guess, this is a gardening show, and this is to keep things topical. This is Canada. The show's you know we're we're. We're recording out of Canada here, and in Canada, uh, cannabis, marijuana, Mary Jane, is going to become legal on October 17th, 2018. Um, and the connection to the gardening show is that you're going to be able to grow your own. Uh, there's different municipal laws. I think here in Halifax, if you grow it, you have to grow it under like a little tent or something like that. I'm not sure what the rule is here, but um, you can grow four plants. In Quebec, you're not going to be allowed to grow it. Quebec or Montreal? Uh, I think Quebec. Wow. Quebec. Yeah. And uh, you'll be able to buy it, of course, in special uh, stores. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're of age, it's uh, basically going to be regulated, uh, I guess, like alcohol. Like or, alcohol. Or, yeah. So you, you can uh, buy it. Uh, of course, uh, there's already a lot of talk about uh, not driving after you've uh, uh, used it. Yes. And there's good reason for that because there is evidence that it does reduce your reaction time. So you can't, you know, switch your foot from the uh, gas to the brake pedal as quickly. Uh, there's evidence for that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there there is also, uh, you know, a lot of evidence from obviously a lot of people having smoked up over the years uh, that uh, it doesn't uh, uh, make you crazy, it doesn't kill you, uh, but it is not benign either. Uh, no, um, there are two sides to, to marijuana. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a lot of confusion about this particular topic. and certainly is. I mean, there's the medical side. Uh, there is, you know, uh, a large number of studies showing that for uh, certain types of seizures, particularly in children, uh, it does work, uh, especially when we're talking about one specific ingredient called, called cannabidiol, uh, which is not the one that makes you high. The one that uh, makes you high is tetrahydrocannabinol. But there are plants uh, which have low THC and high CBD, you know, and those are the ones that are used in, in medicine. Uh, studies have shown that it produces anxiety. Um, it um, it can uh, certainly have an effect on the appetite. Uh, it does increase appetite, uh, and uh, it is sometimes uh, indicated for people who are suffering from uh, diseases where they cannot eat properly, mm -hmm. where they become anorexic. Uh, this sometimes happens in, in cancer uh, patients. Uh, now, where you know where the controversy really is is, is in the social use of this, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, uh, but I don't see it as much of a different controversy than with alcohol. Uh, alcohol in overdose, uh, of course, is a huge problem. Uh, alcohol kills people. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not only talking about uh, drunken drivers; we're talking about alcohol triggering disease. 
uh, alcohol, of course, triggers uh, cirrhosis of the liver. And uh, alcohol is a known carcinogen. So, um, you know, uh, no one is going to say that if you have that glass of red wine every day, uh, it's going to be a huge problem. But, uh, you know, if you have three or four drinks every day, which is not such an unusual thing for many people, (laughs) you know, that certainly is linked to to disease. So uh, when I mentioned earlier that the dose makes the poison, that, of course, applies here, too. Uh, I don't think that smoking a single joint is going to harm people. But what if someone smokes 10 a day? And how are you going to to control that? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to test for it? See, at least with alcohol, there are standard tests. You know, there's the breathalyzer test. And if you suspect someone of drunken driving, the police can stop them. And you can show that they had a high level of alcohol. Right now... There isn't a standard test available for uh, marijuana. This is something that I find fascinating because they're going to legalize this in, in the middle of October. And according to what you're telling me, and, and I always thought they wouldn't legalize this till this was the case. It's, is it the case that right now a cop pulls a guy over because he's weaving all over the road and the cop's got no way to tell if that guy's hot? No, there's no reliable uh, instrumentation now. There's certain they're certainly working on it. There's an awful lot of research on that, but it's not like with alcohol where, you know, you can categorically determine the blood level of alcohol. Uh, you cannot do that with, uh, with marijuana. Now, I think that someone, even if they're high on pot, their, uh, their reaction time will be slowed, and, uh, but they will not be weaving like, uh, like an alcohol. But uh, you're quite right. When the policeman stops someone, there's going to be, at this point, uh, no way to prove that they were high unless, you know, they, they're caught with a huge amount in a car or something. But even that wouldn't really mean much because there's no law. If you can legally buy it, you can have it in your car. Yeah. When there's such a variance, I mean, when I was in university, I knew, I knew people that could smoke pot and go play soccer and stuff like that. Right. And then there was other people uh, that would just be laid out and, you know, just sort of go to sleep, game over sort of thing, even after just a couple, uh, you know, not much at all sort of thing. And, you know, there, there are uh, people who uh, are afflicted with multiple sclerosis, for example, who will tell you that it gives them wonderful relief. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, the coin has two sides. And uh, we will see how this shakes down once it's uh, legal. And uh, at this point, no one can really predict exactly what is going to happen or how popular it's going to be. Uh, You know, I I think there's a good chance that at first uh, there will be lineups and everyone will want to give it a shot. And um, I think in many cases it will mostly fade away. Well, but and it's also, I mean, it's, it's not like this is, it's the same case in the United States where they think having a healthcare system is insane. It's not like this is, is some insane thing no one's ever done before. There's other countries that exactly. have done this. They're not, it's not like a, you know, a dystopian hellscape now. I mean, those countries have, uh, are trucking along and they're doing fine. Like, uh, I think most of, the, or whatever. most of the appeal for buying it in the stores will come from those people who are doing pot already anyway. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the, the you know, uh, general population that is, okay, well, i got to give this a try. I, I think it's going to be mostly people who are already uh, smoking the stuff. I, I have a different opinion on that. I, 
I think that uh, the people that are already buying it illegal, illegally don't really care how they get it, and they probably like where they're getting it from. Well, and, I think uh, it's, going to be, <laughs> it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper when it's legalized. Do you think so? I think so. Yeah, I think oh. so. I, I, uh, and and also, I, I think it's going to to limit some of the crime that is associated with selling it. I hope so. If it's cheap, I I I always thought if people could grow their own, the price would go right down. But I mean, people can grow their own food, and most people don't. Uh, so, <laughs> you know. Well, listen. There's a lot of people growing marijuana right now. You know? <laughs> yes. it, it is said to be the biggest cash crop in Quebec already yes. for years and years. You know, it's usually grown in cornfields. Because you can't see it, the corn the corn grows higher, ah. so you can't, you can't see the marijuana plants in between the corn. And even when police patrol uh, by aircraft, you can't see it in the cornfields. Ah, clever! Yeah, so there is a a lot of illegal uh, marijuana being grown already, anyway. Well, here in here in Nova Scotia, they use the term the crop on the crown land. Actually, I was fishing once. This would have been like back in the nineties. And uh, I, was, I was using my compass to get from the highway to uh, a lake. And uh, I went through this opening, and there was marijuana growing all over the place, in the middle of the woods, in the middle, on crown, basically on, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth's land, <laughs> the crown land. Uh, some guy had just planted a bunch of plants there. I was kind of worried that they were there and I was going to be shot or something. <laughs> I, got, I got out of there. Uh, but. That, yeah, hap that happens would, here. Probably wouldn't have been a good idea to steal it. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> oh, man. So, I guess, um, continuing in that vein, uh, there's a lot of claims from sources like, uh, you know, just various online sources. Like, uh, for instance, I'm looking at a website right now called The Natural News. And... Uh, Let's, I'm just going to read you the health benefits they're claiming are attached to uh, the uh, cannabis seeds. The health benefits of hemp seeds. Uh, 20 amino acids, including 8 essential amino acids your body can't produce, making it a complete plant protein. Uh, abundant source of uh, essential fatty acids. More than flax or any other nut or seed oil. Rich in gamma, linoleic acid. Um, Optimal 1 to 3 ratio of omega 3 to omega 6, rich source of antioxidant plants. Yeah, that is sort of all true, but you can say that, you know, you can say that for soybeans, you can say that for many, many other crops. It's not hard to get the amino acids. Let me just mention that Natural News, which is run by a character named Mike Adams, is probably the worst health website in existence. <laughs> awesome. uh, it is, it is full of scams. It is full of misleading uh, information. Uh, he is uh, basically an anarchist. Uh, he's anti-government. Uh, he sees conspiracies everywhere. Uh, Mike Adams is, is just a, a bizarre, bizarre character not to be trusted. I honestly so, think the, the whole thing is just a big long con to sell stuff. And, and even to that point... Absolutely. And, you know, you go to their shop and, and, of course, they will sell you the hemp seeds and everything. This very, I mean, this, this, this very thing I'm quoting here, if you, if you scroll down just a few more, after the list about 10 more great things about hemp seeds, which, uh, reading over this quickly, I could say, well, potatoes have a lot of that stuff, too. Um, exactly. They say, uh, to reap the full benefits of hemp, get the Health Rangers organic hemp seed oil, which Health Rangers and other uh, you know, subsidiary of uh, this guy's health, empire. 
Fincher is what Mike Adams calls himself. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's, you know, I, I, I have other names for him. <laughs> but it's very good, uh, very good marketing and very good, uh, you know, positioning because of the concept well, of as, a ranger. You know, as, oh, no, it is not hard to get amino acids in the diet. It's not hard to get uh, our essential fats in the diet. You certainly do not have to resort to eating uh, hemp seeds. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with eating hemp seeds. But, no. but, okay. I mean, it's it's not as if it were some sort of uh, miracle food. No, it's, yeah, it's not a mystery how to get these things. You have a balanced diet. All these things are fine. I, mean, I imagine the last time I had my uh, blood work done at my doctor's, I had the right amount of everything, and I don't take anything. Um, I just have a healthy diet, and I try not to drink too much. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I told you when my rules of toxicology, first one is uh, on those makes the poison. Second one is association is not the same as uh, cause and effect. Third rule is never listen to anything on uh, natural news. <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's good advice. All right. Well, I think we've hit on all the things we're going to hit up this time. And uh, boy, I, I really hope to uh, have you on the show again. Uh, if you've ever got anything you want to talk about, please let us know. And I'll, of course, I'll... happy to do it. Happy to do it. Great, great. And uh, I'd like to direct anyone that's uh, interested or intrigued in uh, in uh, Dr. Joe to Google. Well, I, I think the easiest way is our website, yes. which is uh, www.mcgill.ca/oss. And there you can actually subscribe to our weekly digest. Oh, that's great. I'll put a, uh, a link to that in the show notes for sure. It's free, of course. And it appears uh, every Friday morning in your inbox, in your email. And uh, I hope it's entertaining and informative. Uh, and uh, we give you some of the current information. We give you some interesting background. Uh, dress it up with a, a bit of whimsy. And uh, I hope that uh, people like it. So you just go to mcgill.ca slash OSS and you can sign up there. Uh, I also uh, have, as I said, 16 books uh, out there. It's <laughs> the a lot of books. It's a lot of books. The last one uh, was just released. It's called The Feast of Science. And uh, that's also available from our website. It's also available on Amazon. It should be in bookstores. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my uh, unabashed uh, sales pitch. Well, and, I mean, I guess just to, just to follow that up, for those that don't really understand the academic world, um, at least in Canada, you know, if you go on uh, the website that uh, Dr. Schwartz is directing you to, he doesn't make any more money. If you read his stuff, he doesn't make any more money. He's an academic. He makes He gets a salary from the University of McGill, and that's about it. Even if... You buy, uh, you know, an academic publishes a book. Uh, you know, really, what do you get, a penny, a book or something? They don't make a lot of money. I, I, I can't speak specifically. I know, I know like textbooks and things like that. A professor uh, writes a textbook because he doesn't like the other textbooks. He doesn't create a textbook because he thinks he's going to get rich making textbooks. No, the, the textbooks, you know, that sell by the hundreds of thousands, and there are a few, of course. Yeah, there you make money, but most of them not. Uh, publishing is, is not... Uh, Especially in Canada, publishing is not a business for making money. You you write things because you like to do it. You publish because you're compelled to just get you know make some point. Yes, and you know you hope that you do society uh, service by by doing it. There are other ways of making money. You can grow marijuana and sell it. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> Great point. All right. Well, thanks for being on our show. I'm going to put links for the various online resources affiliated or associated with Dr. Joe. Okay. Thank you very yeah. much. And uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. All right. See you next time, everyone. <laughs>